Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 15. Chapter 105. Does the whale's magnitude diminish? Will he perish? Inasmuch as this leviathan comes floundering down upon us from the headwaters of the eternities, it may be fitly inquired whether, in the long course of his generations, he has not degenerated from the original bulk of his sires. But upon investigation we find that not only are the whales of the present day superior in magnitude to those whose fossil remains are found in the tertiary system, embracing a distinct geological period prior to man, but of the whales found in the tertiary system, those belonging to the, its latter formations exceed in size those of earlier ones. Of all the pre-Adamite whales yet exhumed, by far the largest is the Alabama one mentioned in the last chapter, and that was less than 70 feet in length in the skeleton, whereas we have already seen that the tape measure gives 72 feet for the skeleton of a large-sized modern whale, and I have heard on whaleman's authority that sperm whales have been captured near 100 feet long at the time of capture. But it may not be, that while the whales of the present hour are in advance in magnitude upon those of all previous geological periods, may it not be that since Adam's time they have degenerated? Assuredly, we must conclude so, if we are to credit the accounts of such gentlemen as Pliny and the ancient naturalists generally, for Pliny tells us of whales that embraced acres of living bulk, and Aldrovandus of others which measured 800 feet in length, rope walks and Thames tunnels of whales, and even in the days of Banks and Solander, Cook's naturalists, we find a Danish member of the Academy of Sciences setting down certain Iceland whales, Redan Siskur, or wrinkled bellies, at 120 yards, that is 360 feet. And Lacopede, the French naturalist, in his elaborate history of whales in the very beginning of his work, see page 3, sets down the right whale at 100 meters, 328 feet. And this work was published so late as A.D. 1825. But will any whaleman believe these stories? No. The whale of today is as big as his ancestors in Pliny's time, and if ever I go where Pliny is, I, a whaleman more than he was, will make bold to tell him so. Because I cannot understand how it is that while the Egyptian mummies that were buried thousands of years before even Pliny was born do not measure so much in their coffins as a modern Kentuckian in his socks, and while the cattle and other animals sculptured on the oldest Egyptian and Nineveh tablets, by the relative proportions in which they are drawn, just as plainly prove that the high-bred, stall-fed prize cattle of Smithfield do not only equal, but far exceed in magnitude 
magnitude the fattest of Pharaoh's fat kine, in the face of all this, I will not admit that of all animals the whale alone should have degenerated. But still another inquiry remains, one often agitated by the more recondite Nantucketers. Whether owing to the almost omniscient lookouts at the mastheads of the whale ships now penetrating even through Bering Straits and into the remotest secret drawers and lockers of the world, and the thousand harpoons and lances darting along all continental coasts, the moot point is whether Leviathan can long endure so wild a chase and so remorseless a havoc whether he must not at last be exterminated from the waters and the last whale, like the last man, smoke his last pipe and then himself evaporate in the final puff. Comparing the humped herds of whales with the humped herds of buffalo, which, not forty years ago, overspread by tens of thousands the prairies of Illinois and Missouri, and shook their iron manes and scowled with their thunder-clotted brows upon the sites of populous river capitals where now the polite broker sells you land at a dollar an inch. In such a comparison, an irresistible argument would seem furnished to show that the hunted whale cannot now escape speedy extinction. But you must look at this matter in every light. Though not so short a period ago, not a good lifetime, the census of the buffalo in Illinois exceeded the census of men now in London, and though at the present day not one horn or hoof of them remains in all that region, and though the cause of this wondrous extermination was the spear of man, yet the far different nature of the whale hunt preemptorily forbids so inglorious an end to the leviathan. Forty men in one ship hunting the sperm whales for forty-eight months think they have done extremely well, and thank God if at last they carry home the oil of forty fish. Whereas in the days of the old Canadian and Indian hunters and trappers of the West, when the far West, in whose sunset suns still rise, was a wilderness and a virgin, the same number of moccasined men for the same number of months mounted on horse instead of sailing in ships would have slain not forty, but forty thousand and more buffaloes, a fact that, if need were, could be statistically stated. Nor, considered aright, does it seem any argument in favor of the gradual extinction of the sperm whale, for instance, that in former years, the latter part of the last century, say, these leviathans and small pods were encountered much oftener than at present, and, in consequence, the voyages were not so prolonged and were also much more remunerative. Because, as has been elsewhere noticed, those whales, influenced by some views to safety, now swim in the seas in immense caravans, so that to a large degree the scattered solitaries, yokes and pods, and schools of other days are now now aggregated into vast but widely separated unfrequent armies. That is all, and equally fallacious seems the conceit that because the so-called whalebone whales no longer haunt many grounds in former years abounding with them, hence that species also is declining. For they are only being driven from promontory to cape, and if one coast is no longer enlivened with their jets, then to be sure some other and remoter strand has been very recently startled by the unfamiliar spectacle. Furthermore, concerning these last-mentioned leviathans, they have two firm fortresses which in all human probability will forever remain impregnable. 
As upon the invasion of their valleys, the frosty Swiss have retreated to their mountains, so, hunted from the savannas and glades of the Middle Seas, the whalebone whales can at last resort to their polar citadels, and diving under the ultimate glassy barriers and walls there, come up among icy fields and flows, and in a charmed circle of everlasting December, bid defiance to all pursuit from man. But as perhaps fifty of these whalebone whales are harpooned for one cachalot, some philosophers of the forecastle have concluded that this positive havoc has already very seriously diminished their battalions. But though for some time past a number of these whales, not less than thirteen thousand, have been annually slain on the Norwest coast by the Americans alone, yet there are considerations which render even this circumstance of little or no account as an opposing argument in this matter. Natural as it is to be somewhat incredulous concerning the populousness of the more enormous creatures of the globe, yet what shall we say to Harto, the historian of Goa, when he tells us that at one hunting the king of Siam took four thousand elephants, that in those regions elephants are numerous as droves of cattle in the temperate climates? And there seems no reason to doubt that if these elephants, which have now been hunted for thousands of years by Semiramis, by Porus, by Hannibal, and by all the successive monarchs of the East, if they still survive there in great numbers, much more may the great whale outlast all hunting, since he has a pasture to expatiate in, which is precisely twice as large as all Asia, both Americas, Europe, and Africa, New Holland, and all the isles of the sea combined. Moreover, we are to consider that from the presumed great longevity of whales, they're probably attaining the age of a century and more, therefore, at any one period of time, several distinct adult generations must be contemporary. And what that is, we may soon gain some idea of by imagining all the graveyards, cemeteries, and family vaults of creation yielding up the live bodies of all the men, women, and children who were alive 75 years ago, and adding this countless host to the present human population of the globe. Wherefore, for all these things, we account the whale immortal in his species, however perishable in his individuality. He swam the seas before the continents broke water. He once swam over the site of the Tuileries and Windsor Castle and the Kremlin. In Noah's flood he despised Noah's ark, and if ever the world is to be again flooded, like the Netherlands, to kill off its rats, then the eternal whale will still survive, and rearing upon the topmost crest of the equatorial flood, spout his frothed defiance to the skies. Chapter 106 Ahab's Leg The precipitating manner in which Captain Ahab had quitted the Samuel Enderby of London had not been unattended with some small violence to his own person. He had lighted with such energy upon the thwart of his boat that his ivory leg had received a half-splintering shock and when, after gaining his own deck and his own pivot hole there, he so vehemently wheeled round with an urgent command to the steersman, it was, as ever, something about his not steering inflexibly enough, then the already shaken ivory received such an additional twist and wrench that, though it still remained entire and to all appearances lusty, yet Ahab did not deem it entirely trustworthy. And, indeed, 
It seemed small matter for wonder that, for all his pervading and mad recklessness, Ahab did at times give careful heed to the condition of that dead bone upon which he partly stood. For it had not been very long prior to the Pequod sailing from Nantucket that he had been found one night lying prone upon the ground and insensible by some unknown and seemingly inexplicable unimaginable casualty, his ivory limb having been so violently displaced that it had stakewise smitten and all but pierced his groin, nor was it without extreme difficulty that the agonizing wound was entirely cured. Nor at that time had it failed to enter his monomaniac mind that all the anguish of that then present suffering was but the direct issue of a former woe, and he too plainly seemed to see that as the most poisonous reptile of the marsh perpetuates his kind as inevitably as the sweetest songster of the grove, so equally with every felicity all miserable events do naturally beget their like." Yea, more than equally, thought Ahab, since both the ancestry and posterity of grief go further than the ancestry and posterity of joy. For, not to hint of this, that it is an influence from certain canonic teachings that while some natural enjoyments here shall have no children born to them from the other world, but on the contrary shall be followed by the joy-childlessness of all hell's despair. Whereas some guilty mortal miseries shall still fertilely beget to themselves an eternally progressive progeny of griefs beyond the grave, nor at all to hint of this, there still seems an inequality in the deeper analysis of the thing. For, thought Ahab, while even the highest earthly felicities ever have a certain unsignifying pettiness lurking in them, but at bottom all heart woes a mystic significance, and in some men an archangelic grandeur, so do their diligent tracings out not belie the obvious deduction. To trail the genealogies of these high mortal miseries carries us at last among the sourceless primogenitures of the gods, so that, in the face of all the glad haymaking suns and soft symboling round harvest moons, we must needs give in to this, that the gods themselves are not forever glad. The ineffable, sad birthmark in the brow of man is but the stamp of sorrow in the signers. Unwittingly here a secret has been divulged, which perhaps might more properly in set way have been disclosed before. With many other particulars concerning Ahab, always had it remained a mystery to some why it was that for a certain period, both before and after the sailing of the Pequod, he had hidden himself away with such grand llama-like exclusiveness and for that one interval sought speechless refuge, as it were, among the marble senate of the dead. Captain Peleg's brooded reason for this thing appeared by no means adequate, though indeed, as touching all Ahab's deeper part, every revelation partook more of significant darkness than of explanatory light. But in the end it all came out. This one matter did, at least, that direful mishap was at the bottom of his temporary reclusiveness. And not only this, but to that ever-contracting, dropping circle ashore, who for any reason possessed the privilege of a less banned approach to him, to that timid circle the above-hinted casualty, remaining as it did moodily unaccounted for by Ahab, invested itself with terrors not entirely underived from the land of spirits 
and of whales. So that, though their zeal for him, they had all conspired so far as in them lay, to muffle up the knowledge of this thing from others, and hence it was, that not till a considerable interval had elapsed did it transpire upon the Pequod's decks. But be all this as it may, let the unseen ambiguous synod of the air, or the vindictive princes and potentates of fire, have to do or not with the earthly Ahab. Yet, in this present matter of his leg, he took plain, practical procedures. He called the carpenter. And when that functionary appeared before him, he bade him, without delay, set about making a new leg, and directed the mates to see him supplied with all the studs and joists of jaw ivory, sperm whale, which had thus far been accumulated in the voyage, in order that a careful selection of the stoutest, clearest-grained stuff might be secured. This done, the carpenter received orders to have the leg completed that night and to provide for all the fittings for it, independent of those pertaining to the distrusted one in use. Moreover, the ship's forge was ordered to be hoisted out of its temporary idleness in the hold, and to accelerate the affair, the blacksmith was commanded to proceed at once to the forging of whatever iron contrivances might be needed. Chapter 107 The Carpenter Seat thyself sultanically among the moons of Saturn, and take high abstracted man alone, and he seems a wonder, a grandeur, and a woe. But from the same point take mankind in mass, and for the most part they seem a mob of unnecessary duplicates, both contemporary and hereditary. But most humble though he was, and far from furnishing an example of the high humane abstraction, the Pequod's carpenter was no duplicate. Hence, he now comes in person on this stage. Like all seagoing ship carpenters, and more especially those belonging to whaling vessels, he was, to a certain off-handed practical extent, alike experienced in numerous trades and callings collateral to his own. The carpenter's pursuit being the ancient and outbranching trunk of all those numerous handicrafts which more or less have to do with wood as an auxiliary material. But besides the application to him of the generic remark above, this carpenter of the Pequod was singularly efficient in those thousand nameless mechanical emergencies continually recurring in a large ship upon a three or four years voyage, in uncivilized and far distant seas. For not to speak of his readiness in ordinary duties, repairing stove boats, sprung spars, reforming the shape of clumsy bladed oars, inserting bull's-eyes in the deck, or new tree-nails in the side planks, and other miscellaneous matters more directly pertaining to his special business, he was, moreover, unhesitatingly expert in all manner of conflicting aptitudes, both useful and capricious. The one grand stage where he enacted all his various parts so manifold was his vice-bench, a long, rude, ponderous table furnished with several vices of different sizes and both of iron and of wood. At all times except when whales were alongside, this bench was securely lashed athwart ships against the rear of the triworks. A belaying pin is found too large to be easily inserted into its hole. The carpenter claps it in one of his ever-ready vices, and straightaway files it smaller. A lost land bird of strange plumage strays on board and is made a captive. Out of clean shaved rods of right whale bone and cross beams of sperm whale ivory, the carpenter makes a pagoda-looking cage for it. An oarsman sprains his wrist. 
the carpenter concocts a soothing lotion. Stubb longed for vermilion stars to be painted upon the blade of his every oar. Screwing each oar into his big vise of wood, the carpenter symmetrically supplies the constellation. A sailor takes a fancy to wear shark bone earrings. The carpenter drills his ears. Another has a toothache. The carpenter out pincers and, clapping his hand upon his bench, bids him be seated there. But the poor fellow unimaginably winces under the unconcluded operation. Whirling round the handle of his wooden vice, the carpenter signs him to clap his jaw in that, if he would have him draw the tooth. Thus, this carpenter was prepared at all points, and alike indifferent and without respect in all. Teeth he accounted bits of ivory, heads he deemed but top blocks, men themselves he lightly held for capstans. But while now upon so wide a field thus variously accomplished, and with such liveliness of expertness in him too, all this would seem to argue some uncommon vivacity of intelligence. But not precisely so. For nothing was this man more remarkable than for a certain impersonal stolidity, as it were. Impersonal, I say, for it so shaded off into the surrounding infinite of things that it seemed one with the general stolidity discernible in the whole visible world, which, while pauselessly active in uncounted modes, still eternally holds its peace and ignores you, though you dig foundations for cathedrals. Yet was this half-horrible stolidity in him, involving, too, as it appeared, an all-ramifying heartlessness, yet was it oddly dashed at times, with an odd, crutch-like, antediluvian, wheezing humorousness, not unstreaked now and then with a certain grizzled wittiness, such as might have served to pass the time during the midnight watch on the bearded forecastle of Noah's Ark. Was it that this old carpenter had been a lifelong wanderer, whose much rolling to and fro not only had gathered no moss, but, what is more, had rubbed off whatever small outward clingings might have originally pertained to him? He was a stripped abstract, an unfractioned integral, uncompromised as a newborn babe, living without premeditated reference to this world or the next. You might almost say that this strange uncompromisedness in him involved a sort of unintelligence, for in his numerous trades he did not seem to work so much by reason or by instinct, or simply because he had been tutored to it, or by any intermixture of all these, even or uneven, but merely by a kind of deaf and dumb, spontaneous, literal process. He was a pure manipulator. His brain, if he had ever had one, must have early oozed along into the muscles of his fingers. He was like one of those unreasoning but still highly useful multum imparvo, Sheffield contrivances, assuming the exterior, though a little swelled, of a common pocket knife, but containing not only blades of various sizes, but also screwdrivers, corkscrews, tweezers, awls, pens, rulers, nail filers, countersinkers. So if his superiors wanted to use the carpenter for a screwdriver, all they had to do was open that part of him, and the screw was fast. Or if for tweezers, take him up by the legs, and there they were. Yet, as previously hinted, this omni-tooled open-and-shut carpenter was, after all, no mere machine of an automaton. If he did not have a common soul in him, he had a subtle something that somehow anomalously did its duty. What that was, whether essence of quicksilver or a few drops of hartshorn, there is no telling. 
But there it was, and there it had abided for now some sixty years or more. And this it was, this same unaccountable, cunning life principle in him, this it was, that kept him a great part of the time soliloquizing, but only like an unreasoning wheel, which also hummingly soliloquizes. Or, rather, his body was a sentry box and this soliloquizer on guard there, and talking all the time to keep himself awake. Chapter 108 Ahab and the Carpenter The Deck, First Night Watch Carpenter, standing before his bench vice, and by the light of two lanterns busily filing the ivory joist for the leg, which joist is firmly fixed in the vice. Slabs of ivory, leather, straps, pads, screws, and various tools of all sorts lying about the bench. Forward the red flame of the forge is seen where the blacksmith is at work. Drat the file, drat the bone. That is hard which should be soft, and that is soft which should be hard. So we go, who file old jaws and shin bones, let's try another. Hey, now, this works better. <laughs> Hello, this bone dust is. <laughs> Why, it's... <laughs> yes, it's... <laughs> Bless my soul, it won't let me speak. This is what an old fellow gets for not working in dead lumber. Saw a live tree and you don't get this dust. Amputate a live bone and you don't get it. <laughs> come, come, you old smut. There, bear a hand, and let's have that ferrule and buckle screw. I'll be ready for them presently. Lucky now, <laughs> there's no knee joint to make. That might puzzle a little, but a mere shin bone. Why, it's easy as making up hop poles. I should like to put a good finish on. Time, time, if only I but had the time. I could turn him out as neat a leg now as ever. <laughs> Scraped to a lady in a parlor. Those buckskin legs and calves of his I've seen in shop windows wouldn't compare at all. They soak water, they do, and of course get rheumatic and you have to be doctored <laughs> with washes and lotions just like live legs. There. Before I saw it off now, I must call his old mogul ship and see whether the length will be all right. Too short, if anything, I guess. Ha! <laughs> That's the heel. We're in luck. Here he comes. Or it's somebody else. That's certain. Ahab, advancing. During the ensuing scene, the carpenter continues sneezing at times. Well, manmaker. Just in time, sir. If the cotton pleases, I will now mark the length. Let me measure, sir. Measured for a leg. Good. Well, it's not the first time. About it. There, keep thy finger on it. This is a cogent vice thou hast here, carpenter. Let me feel its grip once. So, so, it does pinch some. Oh, sir, it will break bones. Beware, beware. No fear. I like a good grip. I like to feel something on this slippery wood that can hold man. What's Prometheus about there? The blacksmith. I mean, what's he about? He must be forging the buckle screw now, sir. Right. It's a partnership. He supplies the muscle part, and he makes the fierce red flame there. Aye, sir. He must have the white eat for this kind of fine work. Hmm, so he must. I do deem it now a most meaning thing, that old Greek Prometheus, who made men, they say, should have been a blacksmith, and animated them with fire. For what's made in fire must properly belong to fire, and so hell's probable. 
How the soot flies. This must be the remainder the Greek made the Africans of. Carpenter, when he's through with the buckle, tell him to forge a pair of steel shoulder blades. There's a peddler aboard with a crushing pack. Sir? Hold. While Prometheus is about it, I'll order a complete man after a desirable pattern. Imprimus, fifty feet high in his socks. Then chest modeled after the Thames Tunnel, then legs with roots in him. To stay in one place, then arms three feet through the wrist. No heart at all. Brass forehead and above a quarter of an acre of fine brains. And let me see. Shall I order eyes to see outwards? No. Put a skylight in the top of his head to illuminate inwards. There, take the order and away. Now what's he speaking about? And who's he speaking to, I should like to know. Should I keep standing here? Tis but indifferent architecture to make a blind dome. Here's one. No, no, no. I must have a lantern. Oh, ho. What's it, eh? Here are two, sir. One will serve my turn. What art thou thrusting that thief-catcher into my face for, man? Thrusted light is worse than presented pistols. Well, I thought, sir, that you spoke to Carpenter. Carpenter? Why, that's... But no... A very tidy, and I might say, an extremely gentlemanlike sort of business thou art in here, Carpenter. Or wouldst thou rather work in clay? Sir? Clay? Clay, sir? That's mud. We leave clay to the ditchers, sir. The fellow's impious. What art thou sneezing about? <laughs> Bone is rather dusty, sir. Take the hint, then, and when thou art dead, never bury thyself under living people's noses. Sir? Oh, ah, <laughs> I guess so. Yes. Oh, dear. Look ye, carpenter. I dare say thou callest thyself a right good workmanlike workman, eh? Well, then, will it speak thoroughly well for thy work if, when I come to mount the leg that thou makest, I shall nevertheless feel another leg in the same identical place with it? That is, Carpenter, my old lost leg, the flesh and blood one, I mean. Canst thou not drive that old Adam away? Truly, sir, I begin to understand somewhat now. Yes, I have heard something curious on that score, sir. How that dismasted man never entirely loses the feeling of his old spar. But it will be still pricking him at times. May I humbly ask if it be really so, sir? It is, man. Look, put thy live leg here in the place where mine once was. So, now, here is the only one distinct leg to the eye, yet two to the soul. Where thou feelest tingling life there, exactly there, where to a hair do I... Is a riddle? I should humbly call it a poser, sir. Hist, then. How dost thou know that some entire living, thinking thing may not be invisibly and uninterpretably standing precisely where thou now standest? Hey, and standing there in thy spite, in thy most solitary hours, then dost thou not fear eavesdroppers? Hold, don't speak. And if I still feel the smart of my crushed leg, though it be so no long dissolved, then why mayest not thou, carpenter, feel the fiery pains of hell forever, and within a body? Ha! Good Lord! Truly, sir, if it comes to that, I must calculate over again. I think I didn't carry a small figure, sir. Look ye! Puddinheads should never grant promises. How long before the leg is done? Perhaps an hour, sir. Bungle away at it, then, and bring it to me. 
turns to go. Oh, life! Here I am, proud as a Greek god, and yet standing debtor to this blockhead for a bone to stand on. Cursed be that mortal inter-indebtedness which will not away with ledgers. I would be free as air, and I'm down in the whole world's books. I am so rich, I could have given bid for bid with the wealthiest Praetorians in the auction in the Roman Empire, which was the world's, and yet I owe for the flesh in the tongue I brag with. By heavens, I'll get a crucible, and into it, and dissolve myself down into one small compendious vertebra. So, Carpenter, resuming his work. Well, well, well. Stubb knows him best of all, and Stubb always says he's queer. Says nothing but one sufficient little word, queer. He's queer, says Stubb, he's queer, 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 and keeps dinning in it, Mr. Starbuck, all the time. Queer, sir, queer, queer, very queer. And here's his leg. Yes, now that I think of it, here's his bedfellow. Has a stick of a whale's jawbone for a wife. And this is his leg, he'll stand on this. What was that now about one leg standing in three places and all three places standing in one hell? How was that? Oh, I don't wonder he looks so scornful at me. I'm a sort of strange thought sometimes, they say, but it's only haphazard-like. Then a short little old body like me should never undertake to wade out into deep waters with tall, heron-built captains. The water chucks you under the chin pretty quick, and there's a great cry for lifeboats. And here's the heron's leg, long and slim, sure enough. No, for most folks, one pair of legs lasts a lifetime, and that it must be, because they use them mercifully, and as tender-hearted old lady uses her roly-poly old coach horses. But Ahab, oh, he's a hard driver. Look, driven one leg to death and spavined the other for life, and now wears old bones out by the cord. Hello there, you smut. Bear a hand there with those screws, and let's finish it before the resurrection fellow comes a-callin' with his horn for all legs, true or false, as brewery men go round collecting old beer barrels, to fill them up again. What a leg this is! It looks like a real live leg, filed down to nothing but the core. He'll be standing on this tomorrow. He'll be taking altitudes on it. Hello! I almost forgot the little oval slate, smooth ivory where he figures up the latitude. So, so, chisel, file, and sandpaper now. Chapter 109 Ahab and Starbuck in the Cabin According to usage, they were pumping the ship next morning, and, lo, no inconsiderable oil came up with the water. The casks below must have sprung a bad leak. Much concern was shown, and Starbuck went down into the cabin to report this unfavorable affair. Footnote. In sperm whalemen, with any considerable quantity of oil on board, it is a regular, semi-weekly duty to conduct a hose into the hold and drench the casks with seawater, which afterwards, at varying intervals, is removed by the ship's pumps. Hereby, the casks are sought to be kept damply tight, while, by the charged character of the withdrawn water, the mariners readily detect any serious leakage in the precious cargo. End footnote. Now, from the south and west, the Pequod was drawing nigh to Formosa and the Bashi Islands, between which lies one of the tropical outlets from the China waters into the Pacific. And so Starbuck found Ahab with a general chart of the Oriental archipelagos spread before him, and another separate one representing the long eastern coasts of the Japanese islands, 
Nippon Matsumai and Sikoki, with his snow-white new ivory leg braced against the screwed leg of his table, and with a long pruning hook of a jackknife in his hand, the wondrous old man with his back to the gangway door was wrinkling his brow and tracing his old courses again. Who's there? Hearing the footstep at the door, but not turning round to it. On deck, be gone! Captain Ahab mistakes, it is I. The oil in the hold is leaking, sir. We must up Burton's and break out. Up Burton's and break out? Now that we are nearing Japan, heave to here for a week to tinker with a parcel of old hoops. Either do that, sir, waste in one day more oil than we may make good in a year. What we come 20,000 miles to get is worth saving, sir. So it is, so it is, if we get it. I was speaking of the oil in the hold, sir. And I was not speaking or thinking of that at all. Be gone! Let it leak, I'm all a leak myself. Hey! Leaks and leaks, not only full of leaky casks, but those leaky casks are in a leaky ship. And that's a far worse plight than the Pequod's man. Yet I don't stop to plug my leak, for who can find it in a deep-loaded hull, or how hope to pull it, even if found in this life's howling gale? Starbuck, I'll not have the Burtons hoisted. What will the owner say, sir? Let the owners stand on Nantucket Beach and outyell the typhoons. What cares, Ahab? Owners? Owners? Thou art always prating unto me, Starbuck, about these miserly owners as if the owners were my conscience. But look ye, the only real owner of anything is its commander. And hark ye, my conscience is to the ship's keel. On deck! Captain Ahab said the reddening mate, moving further into the cabin, with a daring so strangely respectful and cautious that it almost seemed not only every way seeking to avoid the slightest outward manifestation of itself, but within also seemed more than half distrustful of itself. A better man than I might well pass over in thee what he would quickly enough resent in a younger man. Ay, and in a happier, Captain Ahab. Devils! Dost thou then so much as dare to critically think of me? On deck! Nay, sir, not yet. I do entreat, and I do dare, sir, to be forbearing. Shall we not understand each other better than hitherto, Captain Ahab? Ahab seized a loaded musket from the rack, forming part of most South Seamen's cabin furniture, and pointing it towards Starbuck, exclaimed, There is one god that is the lord of the earth, and one captain that is lord over the Pequod. On deck! For an instant, in the flashing eyes of the mate and his fiery cheeks, you would have almost thought that he had really received the blaze of the leveled tube. But mastering his emotion, he half calmly rose, and as he quitted the cabin, paused for an instant and said, Thou hast outraged, not insulted me, sir. But for that I ask thee not to beware of Starbuck. Thou wouldst but laugh, but let Ahab beware of Ahab. Beware of thyself, old man. He waxes brave, but nevertheless obeys. Most careful bravery, that, murmured Ahab as Starbuck disappeared. What's that he said? Ahab, beware of Ahab. There's something there. Then, unconsciously using the musket for a staff, with an iron brow he paced to and fro in the little cabin, but presently the thick plates of his forehead relaxed, and returning the gun to the rack, he went to the deck. Thou art but too good a fellow, Starbuck, he said lowly to the mate, then raising his voice to the crew. 
Furl the topgallant sails and close reef to the topsails, fore and aft. Back the main yard, up Burton and break out in the main hold. It were perhaps vain to surmise exactly why it was that, as respecting Starbuck, Ahab thus acted. It may have been a flash of honesty in him, or mere prudential policy which, under the circumstance, imperiously forbade the slightest symptom of open disaffection, however transient, in the important chief officer of his ship. However it was, his orders were executed, and the Burtons were hoisted. Chapter 110 Queequeg in His Coffin Upon searching, it was found that the casks last struck into the hold were perfectly sound, and that the leak must be further off. So, it being calm weather, they broke out deeper and deeper, disturbing the slumbers of the huge ground-tier butts, and from that black midnight sending those gigantic moles into the daylight above. So deep did they go, and so ancient and corroded and weedy the aspect of the lowermost puncheons, that you almost looked next for some moldy cornerstone cask containing coins of Captain Noah, with copies of the posted placards vainly warning the infatuated old world from the flood. Tierce after tierce, too, of water and bread and beef and shooks of staves and iron bundles of hoops were hoisted out, till at last the piled decks were hard to get about, and the hollow hull echoed underfoot, as if you were treading over empty catacombs and reeled and rolled in the sea like an air-freighted demijohn. Top-heavy was the ship, as a dinnerless student with all Aristotle in his head. Well was it that the typhoons did not visit them then. Now at this time it was that my poor pagan companion and fast-bosom friend Queequeg was seized with a fever which brought him nigh to his endless end. Be it said that in this vocation of wailing sinecures are unknown, dignity and danger go hand in hand. Till you get to be captain, the higher you rise, the harder you toil. So with poor Queequeg, who, as harpooner, must not only face all the rage of the living whale, but, as we have elsewhere seen, mount his dead back in a rolling sea, and finally descend into the gloom of the hold, and bitterly sweating all day in that subterraneous confinement, resolutely manhandle the clumsiest casks and see to their stowage. To be short, among whalemen the harpooners are the holders, so called. Poor Queequeg. When the ship was about half disemboweled, you should have stooped over the hatchway and peered down upon him there, where, stripped to his woolen drawers, the tattooed savage was crawling about amid the dampness and slime like a green-spotted lizard at the bottom of a well. And a well, or an ice-house, it somehow proved to him a poor pagan, where, strange to say, for all the heat of his sweatings, he caught a terrible chill which lapsed into a fever, and at last, after some days' suffering, laid him in his hammock close to the very sill of the door of death. How he wasted and wasted away in those few long lingering days till there seemed but little left of him but his frame and tattooing. But as all else in him thinned and his cheekbones grew sharper, his eyes nevertheless seemed growing fuller and fuller they became of a strange softness of luster and mildly but deeply looked out at you there from his sickness a wondrous testimony to that immortal health in him which could not die or be weakened and like circles on the water which as they grow fainter expand so his eyes seemed rounding and rounding like the rings of eternity 
An awe that cannot be named would steal over you as you sat by the side of this waning savage, and saw as strange things in his face as any beheld who were bystanders when Zoroaster died. For whatever is truly wondrous and fearful in man never yet was put into words or books, and the drawing near of death, which alike levels all, alike impresses all with a last revelation which only an author from the dead could adequately tell, so that, let us say it again, no dying Chaldee or Greek had higher and holier thoughts than those, whose mysterious shades you saw creeping over the face of my poor Queequeg, as he quietly lay in his swaying hammock, and the rolling sea seemed gently rocking him to his final rest, and the ocean's invisible flood-tide lifted him higher and higher towards his destined heaven. Not a man of the crew but gave him up, and as for Queequeg himself, what he thought of his case was forcibly shown by a curious favor he asked. He called one to him in the gray morning watch, when the day was just breaking, and, taking his hand, said that while in Nantucket he had chanced to see certain little canoes of dark wood, like the rich warwood of his native isle, and upon inquiry he had learned that all whalemen who died in Nantucket were laid in those same dark canoes, and that the fancy of being so laid had much pleased him, for it was not unlike the custom of his own race, who, after embalming a dead warrior, stretched him out in his canoe, and so left him to be floated away to the starry archipelagos. For not only do they believe that the stars are isles, but that far beyond all visible horizons their own mild, uncontented seas interflow with the blue heavens, and so form the white breakers of the Milky Way. He added that he shuddered at the thought of being buried in his hammock, according to the usual sea custom, tossed like something vile to the death-devouring sharks. No. He desired a canoe like those of Nantucket, all the more congenial to him being a whaleman that like a whaleboat these coffin canoes were without a keel, though that involved but uncertain steering and much leeway down the dim ages. Now when this strange circumstance was made known aft, the carpenter was at once commanded to do Queequeg's bidding, whatever it might include. There was some heathenish, coffin-colored old lumber aboard, which upon a long previous voyage had been cut from the aboriginal groves of the Lackaday Islands, and from these dark planks the coffin was recommended to be made. No sooner was the carpenter appraised of the order than taking his rood, he forthwith, with all the indifferent promptitude of his character, proceeded into the forecastle and took Queequeg's measure with great accuracy, regularly chalking Queequeg's person as he shifted the rule. Ah, poor fella, he'll have to die now, ejaculated the Long Island sailor. Going to his vice bench, the carpenter, for convenience sake and general reference, now transferringly measured it to the exact length the coffin was to be, and then made the transfer permanent by cutting two notches at its extremities. This done, he marshaled the planks and his tools and to work. When the last nail was driven and the lid duly planed and fitted, he lightly shouldered the coffin and went forward with it, inquiring whether they were ready for it yet in that direction. Overhearing the indignant but half-humorous cries with which the people on deck began to drive the coffin away, Queequeg, to everyone's consternation, commanded that the thing should be instantly brought to him. 
Nor was there any denying him, seeing that, of all mortals, some dying men are the most tyrannical, and certainly, since they will shortly trouble us so little for evermore, the poor fellows ought to be indulged. Leaning over in his hammock, Queequeg long regarded the coffin with an attentive eye. He then called for his harpoon, had the wooden stock drawn from it, and then had the iron part placed in the coffin along with one of the paddles of his boat. All by his own request. Also, biscuits were then ranged round the sides within, a flask of fresh water was placed at the head, and a small bag of woody earth scraped up in the hold at the foot, and a piece of sailcloth being rolled up for a pillow. Queequeg now entreated to be lifted into his final bed that he might make trial of its comforts, if any it had. He lay without moving a few minutes, then told one to go to his bag and bring out his little god, Yojo. Then, crossing his arms on his breast with Yojo between, he called for the coffin lid, hatch he called it, to be placed over him. The head part turned over with a leather hinge, and there lay Queequeg in his coffin, with little but his composed countenance in view. Rarmai, it will do, it is easy, he murmured at last, and signed to be replaced in his hammock. But ere this was done, Pip, who had been slyly hovering nearby all this while, drew nigh to him where he lay, and with soft sobbings took him by the hand, in the other holding his tambourine. Poor rover, will ye never have done with all this weary roving? Where go ye now? But if the currents carry ye to those sweet Antilles where the beaches are only beat with water lilies, will you one little errand for me? Seek out one Pip, who's now been missing long. I think he's in those far Antilles. If you find him, then comfort him, for he must be very sad, for look, he's left his tambourine behind. I found it. Rig-a-dig, dig-dig. Now Queequeg die, and I'll beat you your dying march. I have heard, murmured Starbuck, gazing down the scuttle, that in violent fevers men all ignorance have talked in ancient tongues, and that when the mystery is probed it turns out always that in their wholly forgotten childhood those ancient tongues have been really spoken in the hearing by some lofty scholars. So to my fond faith poor Pip in this strange sweetness of his lunacy brings heavenly vouchers of all heavenly homes. Where learned he that, but how? Hark, he speaks again, but more wildly now. Form two and two. Let's make a general of him. Oh, where's his harpoon? Lay it across here. Rig a dig dig dig. Huzzah! Oh, for a game cock now to sit upon his head and crow. Queequeg dies game. Mind ye, Queequeg dies game. Take ye good heed of that. Queequeg dies game. I say, game, game. But base little Pip. He died a coward. Died all a shiver. Out upon Pip. Hark ye. If ye find Pip, tell all the Antilles he's a runaway. A coward, coward, coward. Tell them he jumped from a whaleboat. I'd never beat my tambourine over base Pip and hail him, General, if he had once more dying here. No, no, shame upon all cowards, shame upon them. Let him be drowned like Pip, then jumped from a whaleboat. Shame, shame! During all this, Queequeg lay with closed eyes, as if in a dream. Pip was led away, and the sick man was replaced in his hammock. But now that he had apparently made every preparation for death, now that his coffin was proved a good fit, Queequeg suddenly rallied. Soon there seemed no need of the carpenter's box, and thereupon, when some expressed their delighted surprise, he in substance said that the cause of his sudden convalescence was this. At a crucial moment he had just recalled a little duty ashore which he was leaving undone, and therefore had changed his mind about dying. He could not die yet, he averred. They asked him then whether to live or die was a matter of his own sovereign will and pleasure. 
He answered, certainly. In a word, it was Queequeg's conceit that if a man made up his mind to live, mere sickness could not kill him. Nothing but a whale, or a gale, or some violent, ungovernable, unintelligent destroyer of that sort. Now there is this noteworthy difference between savage and civilized. That while a sick, civilized man may be six months convalescing, generally speaking, a sick savage is almost half well again in a day. So in good time, my Queequeg gained strength, and at length, after sitting on the windlass for a few indolent days, but eating with a vigorous appetite, he suddenly leapt to his feet, threw out his arms and legs, gave himself a good stretching, yawned a little bit, and then springing to the head of his hoisted boat and poising a harpoon, pronounced himself fit for a fight. With a wild whimsiness, he now used his coffin for a sea chest, and emptying into it his canvas bag of clothes, set them in order there. Many spare hours he spent in carving the lid with all manner of grotesque figures and drawings, and it seemed that hereby he was striving, in his rude way, to copy parts of the twisted tattoos of his own body. And this tattooing had been the work of a departed prophet and seer of his island, who by those hieroglyphic marks had written out on his body a complete theory of the heavens and the earth, and a mystical treatise on the art of attaining truth, so that Queequeg in his own proper person was a riddle to unfold, a wondrous work in one volume, but whose mysteries not even he himself could read, though his own live heart beat against them, and these mysteries were therefore destined in the end to molder away with the living parchment whereon they were inscribed, and to be unsolved to the last. And this thought it must be which suggested to Ahab that wild exclamation of his when, one morning, turning away from surveying poor Queequeg, Oh, devilish tantalization of the gods! Chapter 111. The Pacific. When gliding by the Banshee Isles, we emerged at last upon the great South Sea. Were it not for other things, I could have greeted my dear Pacific with uncounted thanks. For now the long supplication of my youth was answered, that serene ocean rolled eastwards from me a thousand leagues of blue. There is, one knows not, what sweet mystery about this sea, whose gently awful stirrings seem to speak of some hidden soul beneath. Like those fabled undulations of the Ephesian sod over the buried evangelist St. John. And meet it is that over these sea pastures, wide-rolling, watery prairies, and potter's fields of all four continents, the waves should rise and fall, and ebb and flow unceasingly. For here, millions of mixed shades and shadows drowned dreams, somnambulisms, reveries. All that we call lives and souls lie dreaming, dreaming still tossing like slumbers in their beds, the ever-rolling waves but made so by their restlessness. To any meditative Magian rover, this serene Pacific, once beheld, must ever after be the sea of his adoption. It rolls the midmost waters of the world, the Indian Ocean and Atlantic being but its arms. The same waves wash the moles of the new-built Californian towns but yesterday planted by the recentest race of men, and lave the faded but still gorgeous skirts of the Asiatic lands, older than Abraham. 
while all between float milky ways of coral isles and low-lying, endless, unknown archipelagos and impenetrable Japans. Thus, this mysterious, divine Pacific zones the world's whole bulk about, makes all coasts one bay to it, seems the tide-beating heart of the earth. Lifted by those eternal swells, you needs must own the seductive god, bowing your head to Pan. But few thoughts of Pan stirred Ahab's brain, as standing like an iron statue at his accustomed place beside the mizzen rigging, with one nostril he unthinkingly snuffed the sugary musk from the Bashi Islands, in whose sweet woods mild lovers must be walking, and with the other consciously inhaled the salt breath of the new-found sea, that sea in which the hated white whale must even then be swimming. Launched at length upon these almost final waters and gliding towards the Japanese cruising grounds, the old man's purpose intensified itself. His firm lips met like the lips of a vice. The delta of his forehead's veins swelled like overladen brooks. In his very sleep, his ringing cry ran through the vaulted hull. Sternal, the white whale spouts thick blood! Chapter 112. The Blacksmith. Availing himself of the mild, summer-cool weather that now reigned in these latitudes, and in preparation for the peculiarly active pursuits shortly to be anticipated, Perth, the begrimed, blistered old blacksmith, had not removed his portable forge to the hold again after concluding his contributory work for Ahab's leg, but still retained it on deck fast lashed to the ring bolts by the foremast being now almost incessantly invoked by the headsmen and harpooners and bowsmen to do some little job for them, altering or repairing or new shaping their various weapons and boat furniture. Often he would be surrounded by an eager circle, all waiting to be served, holding boat spades, pike heads, harpoons, and lances, and jealously watching his every sooty movement as he toiled. Nevertheless, this old man's was a patient hammer wielded by a patient arm. No murmur, no impatience, no petulance did come from him. Silent, slow, and solemn, bowing over still further his chronically broken back, he toiled away as if toil were life itself, and the heavy beating of his hammer the heavy beating of his heart. And so it was, most miserable. A peculiar walk in this old man, a certain slight but painful appearing yawning in his gait, had at an early period of the voyage excited the curiosity of the mariners, and to the importunity of this persisted questionings he had finally given in, and so it came to pass that everyone knew the shameful story of his wretched fate. Belated, and not innocently, one bitter winter's midnight on the road running between two country towns, the blacksmith half-stupidly felt the deadly numbness stealing over him and sought refuge in a leaning, dilapidated barn. The issue was the loss of the extremities of both feet. Out of this revelation, part by part, at last came out the four acts of the gladness and the one long and as yet uncatastrophied fifth act of the grief of his life's drama. He was an old man who, of the age of nearly sixty, had postponedly encountered that thing in sorrow's technicals called ruin. He had been an artisan of famed excellence and with plenty to do, owned a house and garden, embraced a youthful, daughter-like, loving wife, and three blithe, ruddy children. 
every Sunday went to a cheerful-looking church planted in a grove. But one night, under cover of darkness and further concealed in a most cunning disguisement, a desperate burglar slid into his happy home and robbed them all of everything. And darker yet to tell, the blacksmith himself did ignorantly conduct this burglar into his family's heart. It was the bottle conjurer. Upon the opening of that fatal cork flew forth the fiend and shriveled up his home. Now, for prudent, most wise, and economic reasons, the blacksmith's shop was in the basement of his dwelling, but with a separate entrance to it. So that always had the young and loving healthy wife listened with no unhappy nervousness, but with vigorous pleasure to the sound ringing of her young-armed old husband's hammer, whose reverberations muffled by passing through the floors and walls came up to her not unsweetly in her nursery, and so, to stout labor's iron lullaby, the blacksmith's infants were rocked to slumber. Oh, woe on woe! Oh, death, why canst thou not sometimes be timely? Hadst thou taken this old blacksmith to thyself ere his full ruin came upon him, then had the young widow had a delicious grief and her orphans a truly venerable, legendary sire to dream of in their after years, and all of them a care-killing competency. But death plucked down some virtuous elder brother on whose whistling daily toil solely hung the responsibilities of some other family, and left the worse than unuseless old man standing till the hideous rot of life should make him easier to harvest. Why tell the whole? The blows of the basement hammer every day grew more and more between, and each blow every day grew fainter than the last. The wife sat frozen at the window, with tearless eyes glitteringly gazing into the weeping faces of her children. The bellows fell, the forge choked up with cinders, the house was sold, the mother dived down into the long churchyard grass, her children twice followed her thither, and the houseless, familyless old man staggered off a vagabond in crepe, his every woe unreverenced, his gray head a scorn to flaxen curls. Death seems the only desirable sequel for a career like this, but death is only a launching into the region of the strange untried. It is but the first salutation to the possibilities of the immense remote, the wild, the watery, the unshored. Therefore, to the death-longing eyes of such men who still have left in them some interior compunctions against suicide, does the all-contributed and all-receptive ocean alluringly spread forth his whole plane of unimaginable taking terrors and wonderful new life adventures, and from the hearts of infinite pacifics the thousand mermaids sing to them. Come hither, broken-hearted, here is another life without the guilt of intermediate death. Here are wonders supernatural without dying for them. Come hither and bury thyself in a life which, to your now equally abhorred and abhorring landed world, is more obvious than death. Come hither, put up thy gravestone too within the churchyard, and come hither, till we marry thee. Hearkening to these voices, east and west, by early sunrise and by fall of eve, the blacksmith's soul responded, Ay, I will come. And so Perth went a-wailing. Chapter 113 The Forge With matted beard and swathed in a bristling sharkskin apron, about midday, Perth was standing between his forge and anvil, the latter placed upon an iron wood log. 
with one hand holding a pike head in the coals and the other at his forge's lungs when Captain Ahab came along, carrying in his hand a small, rusty-looking leathern bag. While yet a little distance from the forge, Moody Ahab paused, till at last Perth, withdrawing his iron from the fire, began hammering it upon the anvil, the red mass sending off sparks in thick, hovering flights, some of which flew close to Ahab. Are these thy mother Carrie's chickens, Perth? They are always flying in thy wake, birds of good omen, too, but not all. Look here, they burn, but thou, thou livest among them without a scorch. Because I am scorched all over, Captain Ahab, answered Perth, resting for a moment on his hammer. I am not past scorching, nor easily canst thou scorch a scar. Well, well, no more. Thy shrunk voice sounds too calmly, sanely woeful to me. In no paradise myself, I am impatient of all misery in others that is not mad. Thou shouldst go mad, blacksmith. Say, why dost thou not go mad? How canst thou endure without being mad? Do the heavens yet hate thee that thou canst not go mad? What wert thou making there? Welding an old pike head, sir. There were seams and dance in it. And canst thou make it all smooth again, blacksmith, after such hard usage as it had? I think so, sir. And I suppose thou canst smooth almost all seams and dents, never mind how hard the metal, blacksmith. Ay, sir, I think I can. All seams and dents but one. Look ye then, cried Ahab, passionately advancing and leaning with both hands on Perth's shoulders. Look ye here, here. Can ye smooth out a seam like this, blacksmith? Sweeping one hand across his ribbed brow. If thou couldst, blacksmith, glad enough would I lay my head upon thy anvil and feel thy heaviest hammer between my eyes. Answer, canst thou smooth this seam? Oh, that is the one, sir. Said I not all seams and dents but one? Hey, blacksmith, it is the one, hey, man, it is unsmoothable, for though thou seest it here in my flesh, it is worked down into the bone of my skull, that is all wrinkles. But away with child's play, no more goffs and pikes today, look ye here. Jingling the leathern bag, as if it were full of gold coins, I too want a harpoon made, one that a thousand yoke of fiends could not part. Perth, something that will stick in the whale like his own fin bone. There's the stuff. Flinging the pouch upon the anvil. Look ye, blacksmith, these are gathered nail stubs of the steel shoes of racing horses. Horseshoe stubs, sir. Why, Captain Ahab, thou hast here the best and stubbornest stuff we blacksmiths ever work. I know it, old man. These stubs will wield together like glue from the melted bones of murderers. Quick, forge me a harpoon, and forge me first twelve rods for its shank. Then wind and twist and hammer these twelve together like the yarns and strands of a towline. Quick, I'll blow the fire. When at last the twelve rods were made, Ahab tried them one by one by spiraling them with his own hand round a long, heavy iron bolt. A flaw! Rejecting the last one. Work it over again, Perth. This done, Perth was about to begin welding the twelve into one when Ahab stayed his hand and said he would weld his own iron. As then, with regular gasping hems, he hammered on the anvil, Perth passing him the glowing rods one after the other and the hard-pressed forge shooting up its intense straight flame. The Parsi passed silently and, bowing over his head towards the fire, seemed invoking some curse or some blessing on the toil. But as Ahab looked up, he slid aside. What's a bunch of lucifers dodging about there for?
muttered Stubb, looking on from the forecastle. That parsley smells like a fusey, and smells of it himself, like a hot musket's powder pan. At last, the shank, in one complete rod, received its final heat, and as Perth, to temper it, plunged all hissing into the cask of water nearby, the scalding steam shot up into Ahab's bent face. Wouldst thou brand me, Perth? Wincing for a moment from the pain, have I been but forging my own branding iron then? Pray God, not that. Yet I fear something. Captain Ahab is not this harpoon for the white whale? For the white fiend, but now for the barbs, thou must makest them thyself, man. Here are my razors, the best of steel, here, and make the barbs sharp, the needle sleet of an icy sea. For a moment, the old blacksmith eyed the razors as though he would fain not use them. Take them, man, I have no need for them, for I will not shave, sup, nor pray, till but here, to work. Fashioned at last into an arrowy shape and welded by Perth into the shank, the steel soon pointed the end of the iron, and as the blacksmith was about giving the barbs their final heat prior to tempering them, he cried to Ahab to place the water cask near. No, no, no water for that! I want it of the true death temper! Ahoy there, Tashtigo, Queequeg, Dago! What say ye, pagans? Will you give me as much blood as will cover this barb? Holding it high up, a cluster of dark nods replied. Yes, three punctures were made in the heathen flesh, and the white whale's barbs were then tempered. Ego non baptizo, ti in nomine patris, sed in nomine diaboli! Deliriously howled Ahab as the malignant iron scorchingly devoured the baptismal blood. Now, mustering the spare poles from below and selecting one of hickory with the bark still investing it, Ahab fitted the end to the socket of the iron. A coil of new tow-line was then unwound and some fathoms of it taken to the windlass and stretched to a grand tension. Pressing his foot upon it till the rope hummed like a harp-string, then eagerly bending over it and seeing no strandings, Ahab exclaimed, Good! And now for the seizings! At one extremity the rope was unstranded, and the separate spread yarns were all braided and woven around the socket of the harpoon. The pole was then driven hard up into the socket. From the lower end the rope was traced halfway along the pole's length, and firmly secured so, with intertwistings of twine. This done, pole, iron, and rope, like the three fates, remained inseparable, and Ahab moodily stalked away with the weapon. The sound of his ivory leg and the sound of the hickory pole both hollowly ringing along every plank. But ere he entered his cabin, light, unnatural, half-bantering, yet most piteous sound was heard. O oh, Pip, thy wretched laugh, thy idle but unresting eye, all thy strange mummeries not unmeaningly blended with the black tragedy of the melancholy ship, and mocked it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.